Good morning. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to Axis Church. We're glad you're here. If you're new to this whole thing we call church, uh, we want you to know we make much of Jesus. We make much of opening the Bible every single week because we believe it's God's love story to us, his people, whereby it tells us he wants us all back in his family. And so we want to extend that invitation to you every week where we come in this space to let you know, to alert you of the good news that God is for us, not against us. So I hope that as we go through this service, that growing awareness comes to you. A reminder of the Version app that's available if you research Access Church North Lakes under events, you'll find us there in all the notes for our sermon today. We continue in the I Am series. We're working through the Gospel of John today, up to number five of seven in this series. And so far, we've looked at Jesus where he said, I am the door. I stand at the door of the life of a believer, guarding what comes in and out of their existence. I am the resurrection. That was Easter Sunday. Jesus is saying to us, when things look hopelessly dark, I can step in and bring new life. We went on then to consider Jesus being the light of the world. He said, I'm the light of the world. If you, if you take me off the scene, the entire world falls into darkness. Last week, we looked at the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. When you take me in, I bring a satisfaction to you that just as bread fills the human body temporarily, I fill the human spirit eternally. They'll never thirst or hunger again if a person takes me in. Today, we consider this, this fifth of seven truths that Jesus says of himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's kind of a three-part claim found by Jesus in John 14, 6. It's a challenging claim. It represents probably the highest form of Christology we've got, where Jesus is claiming exclusively to be the only way to God. Now, clearly, this isn't a claim that fits neatly in our politically correct culture that we find today. It sits there awkwardly and still it hangs. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to heaven except via me, Jesus says. Today, while I want to show you this is a confronting claim made by Jesus, I also believe it's a comforting claim made by by Jesus. So let's jump into the Bible reading, John 14, reading from verse 1. Jesus says these words, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you'll always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you'd really known me, you would have known who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word today. We ought not miss the headline 
that precedes John 14.1. Jesus has just notified his early friends, his followers, of his intention to leave. They are frazzled. The, the previous discussions at the back end of chapter 13, uh, he makes all these claims about his death, about them denying him, about all this being the fulfillment of prophecy. And his friends, they're bewildered. They don't have a clue what's going on. Their heads are spinning. Uh, they don't understand all of these things that Jesus is predicting here. He's left them baffled. In verse 33, take this for example of, of chapter 13. Jesus says, I'll be the only with you a little while longer. You'll look for me, but where I'm going, you cannot come. It's confusing stuff. It's confusing claims, he's saying. It sounds like a game of hide and seek, only Jesus is pre-warning. No use looking for me. You won't be able to find me. You can't come where I'm going. Verse 36 clarifies, well, sort of. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will later. If we put ourselves live in that conversation, we can spot why the early followers are feeling muddled and confused and, yes, a bit anxious. In view of all that's gone down in John 13, the beginning of chapter 14 makes perfect sense. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because that's exactly what they were, troubled. Here's a bunch of guys that we bump into in John 14 with frowns on their faces at least, probably with shoulders sagging, heads hanging low, maybe worse, tears, tears of anguish as they kind of process this news from Jesus that he's leaving. I mean, they've just become accustomed to him being there and being present, being there for. They've grown used to him being being there, helping them through, showing the way, answering their questions. And now this, you're leaving? Just when we got used to you being here? If you ever said goodbye to someone you love, you know that John 14.1 is perhaps the most unhelpful command from Jesus like ever. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Well, thanks a lot, Jesus. Not at all helpful. A crazy thing to say. It's like saying, don't worry, be happy when you just said you're leaving us. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I mean, not relatable at all, Jesus. You've just mentioned something terribly upsetting. And now your message is smile, thumbs up. Don't worry, be happy. All is well. Well, all isn't well. Can I straight talk my response to John 14.1? I want to asked Jesus, do you understand anxiety at all? I'm not sure he knows how a troubled heart feels if this is his advice. He's not speaking as though he gets it. When I first arrived at Access Church at the beginning of the year, I shared with you how much I've struggled with anxiety throughout my life. And I use terms in the present tense because it's an ongoing work that God is doing in me. And often healing is kind of like two steps forward, one step back. At least that's what it's been like for me. Now, I absolutely believe in instantaneous healing where God can just go bang and, and sort someone just like that. Yesterday I had this struggle Today I don't. I'm delivered in Jesus' name. I absolutely believe that. I believe in power encounters of healing with God. But there's also process encounters of healing with God. And in terms of my own personal anxiety, that's what it's been like. It's been 
a process. Little by little, God heals me in this space. Now, my anxiety has never been clinical in its diagnosis. It's just circumstantial, but nonetheless challenging. Having to speak in front of a camera, doing new things. These are enormous challenges for someone like me. What do I tell you this? Because I think I can relate to what the disciples are feeling as we come to the end of John 13. And therefore, I find this comment from Jesus, don't let your hearts be troubled, just isn't helpful. Because if you're anything like me and have struggled with anxiety, you'll understand that it doesn't feel like you choose anxiety. It's not a deliberate choice where you go, I'm going to get me a little bit of anxiety. It's like anxiety chooses you. And the person struggling with it feels like they're a victim to it. And if it were just a matter of flicking a switch and turning it off, we'd do it. So Jesus, what do you mean? How is this helpful? I want to show you today how these three reflections in John 14 can actually help reduce stress, reduce anxiety. And if we swim around these realities, I think we'll be well positioned to feel more peace even at a time in history like this. So let's jump in and consider three anxiety crushes given to us by Jesus in John 14, where he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's my sense that if we let these things swim around in our soul, they'll bring a whole different level of peace to what we've previously experienced. Jesus saying, you don't need to be rattled by my departure because I am the way. I am the way. I provide an exclusive track to the Father. Well, many listeners at this point in time go, wow, Jono, I thought you said these claims were going to reduce my anxiety. My blood pressure has just shot up off the charts. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's what I hate about Christianity. That statement drives me nuts. A lack of tolerance, a lack of appreciation for, for other points of view. So closed-minded to say Jesus alone is the only path to God. If Jesus is communicating that he's not a way to heaven, but the way to heaven, then that does nothing to reduce my stress. Some listeners already feel hot under the collar. Please bear with me. I tend to think it's not Christian beliefs that make people appear arrogant. It's the attitude in which they hold those beliefs. Hopefully I don't come across as one of those arrogant church people today, but I can't get around the fact that John 14:6 gives us this awkward phrase to deal with where Jesus does say, I am the only way to the Father. I can't water that down. I can't water that down. He said it. I have to stick with it. I hope today that you might get to see this in a fresh new light because actually an old idea. If you've got a problem with John 14, 6, you've read too far in. You need to go back in the Bible because it comes in a whole lot earlier. John Dixon points out monotheism is not the Bible's is not only the Bible's first commandment, 
It's the Bible's first thought. Theism, God, mono, one, one God is actually the Bible's starting point. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Please notice what is missing, an S. It's not plural. It doesn't say in the beginning, the gods were there, all 8,000 of them, and they decided to create the world. No, it says in the beginning, one, one, God. So John 14.6 is actually not news. It's a repeat of an earlier show, Genesis 1.1, where God says right from the beginning, I'm the one and only. And then we get into the Bible's second book. And again, this monotheism is highlighted, as Dixon said, not only the Bible's first thought, the Bible's first commandment. In Exodus 20, we get to this space where God is gathering a people, calling a people together to be his own special called people. And the first thing he says, the first thing he says, I need to be your one and only. Have no other gods before me. Now, the detail matters as far as where God was drawing these people out from. He was calling them out of slavery in a place called Egypt. What was the influence of Egypt? What was the views of Egypt when it came to divinity? Well, they, they were a lucky dip. Egypt wouldn't question whether Israelites' gods were legitimate, existed. Another god was fine. Join the party. They had over 2,000 gods in their divinity library. They had God upon God upon God in their worldview. There was a god of music, a god of fertility, a god of medicine, a god of weather. So if you were looking for a 28-degree day to go to the beach, you spoke to one particular god. If you're looking for some rain to water your garden that was a bit dry, you spoke to another god. If you're looking for some romance to get a relationship fired up, you had another god to speak to. All these different gods that you had to relate to and appease. Question. When God says, I'm your one and only... Is that limiting or liberating? I suggest option B. It's actually liberating. God is saying you don't need to consult all these different gods. You don't need to appease all these different religious systems. I am your one and only. So in John 14, all Jesus does really is reiterate what's already been said. I heard a preacher in a recent interview be asked, Isn't it so narrow-minded to say Jesus is the only way to God? I loved his response. He said this, The way I look at it is, What other God is coming after me to rescue me? What other God is coming after me to rescue me? I ask you today, What other God is willing to lay their life down to show how much they love you? What other God is willing to hang on a cross and say, I love you this much? Is John 14 narrow-minded? You get to decide that for yourself. I don't have the privilege of changing it to make it more culturally relevant. And dare I say, even to the person who's 
feeling skeptical about this. Jesus still, with this statement, reduces the level of anxiety we need to feel about life. He simplifies the end game for us because he says, if heaven is the destination you're looking for, then I'm it. Just follow me. You don't have to play religious mathematics and come up with some specialised formula to discover how to approach God. Just follow me. It's that simple. Breathe easy. I am the way. He goes on to say, I am the truth. I'm as trustworthy as my father. You believe in God you trust him, that's a terrific start. Believe also in me. In the same way, find me trustworthy, find my words reliable. Know that I am a safe place. Yes, I've just mentioned that I'm leaving soon, but I'm not playing tricks. I'm not opting out of friendship with you because I'm tired of you or I can't be bothered persisting with you anymore. No, 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 it's not that at all. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this same God that you've got so much confidence in, this, this God who wrote the Old Testament scripture that you hold dear, that same God stands before you now. I am the truth. You can rely on me. All of those promises you hold so dear down through the centuries are embodied right here and now in me, in me. Jesus is affirming that he has their best interests at heart. He only speaks truth, truth that sets us free. That's the only language he knows. He, it's not within his character to lie. He doesn't know how. He speaks truth. If we zoom out of John 14 again for a moment to think about this broader conversation, I think it absolutely demonstrates the trustworthy nature of Jesus. See, the fact that he's initiated this chat about him leaving soon is to me strong evidence of his trustworthy character because here's how we decide as humans whether we can trust someone or not. Their demonstrated ability to bring the real version of the story forward. People that we wind up not trusting are those who drop a few white lies into the story, well, you know, because they don't want to hurt you or whatever it might be. Jesus could have done that and could have justified doing that. He could have written a note and left it on the doorstep. Dear Peter, I didn't know how to say this, so I'm leaving you a note. I don't want to upset you, but I'm, I'm heading off. I won't be in tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. I won't be coming back and don't look for me. Sincerely, Jesus. He doesn't leave a note. He initiates the difficult conversation. Can I suggest that makes him trustworthy? That's how you decide to trust people. And on the other hand, the biggest trust crusher of all is to find out that people didn't tell you the real story. They told you this much, but really the story involved this much. And you find out later through multiple sources, ah, so there was more to that story than what they really said. They say one thing here. They say another thing there. They say one thing to my face. They say another thing to others. These people we become known as two-faced people and we can't really trust them because we can't discern the true state of affairs. Can you see how by Jesus initiating this 
difficult conversation actually demonstrates his trustworthiness. His readiness in chapter 13 to talk straight makes the request of chapter 14 all the more reasonable. Believe in me, trust in me because of his willingness to give us all the facts, the unedited version of the story, not withholding details. That's chapter 13. So when we get to chapter 14 and he says, you believe in my father, which is fantastic, a great start. Believe also in me. He's a fair call. He's saying I'm a safe place to put that same level of confidence in. Eliminating anxiety from our hearts become easy, easier rather, when we realise Jesus is a truth teller. I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm the source of your eternal life, your eternal hope, your eternal destiny. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you. Many, many things in life are uncertain. There's never been a clearer time in history than now that we've discovered that, hey? One thing is sure, the future of those that follow Christ. Jesus here is communicating his imminent departure. He's heading back to heaven, but not with the intent of leaving them abandoned, not with the intent that he, he doesn't love them anymore. He's not leaving them high and dry. It's not as though I'm out of here, God. He's uh, guys, his departure is for good reason. He's setting up their future. So he gets the why really clear. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare eternity for those that love and follow me. Life eternal. You can approach the future with confidence. Even death has lost its sting. Because followers of Jesus see death as a doorway into this future life with him. Embracing that truth goes a long way to eliminating anxiety from our hearts. We have a rock solid future promised here by Jesus. Jesus is the life. Those that believe in him have eternal life. Sometimes we've failed to realise that eternal life, that future hope, actually flows right back into the now, to this very day, to this moment. It's futuristic, yes, but it's also present here and now. This eternal life has actually commenced already. Jesus said it like this, whoever has the Son has life. A shift has already occurred for them. Heaven, which is, which is a future hope, sure, has actually infiltrated into their present existence. Dallas Willard explained the message of Jesus like this. The gospel is less about how to get into heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. Incredible thought. The Christ follower then isn't waiting to escape this earth. In some profound way, they're, they're living already this eternal life that Jesus has brought into their experience. When we take on the living Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within. Do we see the fullness of heaven here and now then? Well, not the fullness. On Easter Sunday, we talked about this concept of now and not yet. 
It's here now. There's an experience of it. We can taste it. And yet there's aspects of that heavenly perfection that aren't here yet. We're still in a broken, fallen world. Sin and disease and pain can still touch us. But the difference is we're alive. We're alive. We've come alive in God. We're not just existing anymore. We're actually living when Christ comes to live within. As we draw this message to a close, some may be asking, John, how do I get started in finding that life? I've investigated the claims of Jesus. I've been doing it for a while now. If truth be known, all the study I've done has not left me feeling alive. Well, don't miss the order of John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Notice where he starts. I think the order matters. See, if we were writing John 14, 6, we might switch it up. We might say, Jesus is the truth. Start there. And Jesus is the way and Jesus is the life. We would start, I would suggest, with truth. Start with the brain. Start with the logic. Start with the reasoning. Engage the theory. Decide if you like it, if you agree with it. And then, and only then, give his way a try. I don't want to get hung up on the order because clearly Jesus is all three of these. But I must admit, I find the order fascinating. Could it be Jesus is saying the way into eternal life is to get our feet wet, to be willing to experience him. And as we do that, as we kind of step out into his ways, there's this confirmation that the gospel is actually true. And eternal life starts bubbling up within as we invite more and more of his presence to take over our whole being. Once you've begun experience his way and living out his principle, life comes alive. Here's my personal testimony. I'll call it an ignorance test. If Jesus Christ were a phony, we'd be able to ignore him without consequence. See, if my way worked well, I'd get along absolutely fine ignoring his. If my truth was strong enough to hold my life together, I'd be okay. I wouldn't need a saviour. If I could be so full of life, thriving, without engaging his presence, I could stay disconnected. Here's my issue. I've found that impossible. I've found that my way doesn't work. It leads to pain and disappointment and failure. I've found that my wisdom doesn't stand up in the heat of life. And I've found that without him, life is empty and dead. And like Peter, one of the disciples, my testimony is this. Lord, where else would I go? You alone, you alone, you alone, you alone have the words of eternal life. That's my testimony and that's my prayer for you this morning. So would you pray with me?
Lord, we together stand in awe of your word where you say there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but the name Jesus Christ. And this causes us today to stand under that word and say, God, you are God. Jesus, you are in charge. You know the way and we don't. You know what's really true. And it's so easy for us to be led astray and get off course. And it's in you, Jesus, that we truly find life. And so I pray for those this morning who are longing for that, that they might just open their hearts right now in this moment and say, Jesus, come and be these things to me. Jesus, show me your ways. Jesus, help me live out your truth. And Jesus, I accept your life as my own. I put my faith, my confidence, my trust in you. God, we commit ourselves to, to following you today and to letting you be God because we recognise we are so, so unqualified. So God, be patient with us as we continue to stumble through, but learn your words, Jesus, are so true. We affirm them today as we sing them together. Amen.